0: If Gospels of Sin Management are preached, they are what Christians will believe. And those in the wider world who reject those Gospels will believe what they have rejected is the Gospel of Jesus Christ himself, when in fact, they haven't heard it yet.
1: Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler. This week, we're doing another bonus episode from Chapter 2. This is what Willard titles, The Case of the Missing Teacher. So, we're going to talk about what it means for Jesus to be our teacher, to treat him as our rabbi, to follow in what he says. This, as an antidote to the gospel of sin management, is essential. Because without Jesus' teacher, it's pretty much what we're left with. So if that intrigues you, please continue listening. I hope it is insightful, entertaining, and that you can glean something from this conversation. Again, I've split what was two conversations into one conversation here. I'll put timestamps down below for that. And as always, thank you very much. All right, so hopefully we've ma- mapped out for you guys some of the extensions, let's say, of these Gospels of Sin Management, uh, how the right and the left have their own versions of censorship, their own versions of progress, how they both believe in a doctrine of progress. Um, but as the cultural this Cultural Moment podcast pointed out, Many times it becomes, especially in the purely secular and political realms, a kingdom without a king. And I said earlier that this is because they are missing the central element of the gospel, which is Jesus, the king, right? Um, We can think back to Philippians, the early Christian confession that Paul quotes, Every tongue can bow, every tongue confess and every knee bow that what? Not that they're all included, although they are, but that Jesus Christ is Lord, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go make disciples of all nations. right It's under the kingship of Jesus that these things become realities. And so Willard, at the end of chapter two, makes a case, and I think it's the case. It's the case I teased last week, and we're finally going to get here now, but it's what Willard calls the case of the missing teacher. He says, so as things now stand, we have on one hand some kind of faith in Christ, and on the other the life of abundance and obedience he is and offers, but we have no effective bridge from the faith to the life. Some do work it out, but when that happens, it is looked upon as a fluke or an accident, not as normal and natural, a part of the regular good news itself. Prayer also may seem to work for some, but who knows how or why? It's a question I ask. And anyway, effectiveness in prayer is not required, either to go to heaven when you die or to be committed to the causes of liberation. We set back into de facto alienation of our religion from Jesus as friend and teacher and from our moment to moment existence as a holy calling or appointment with God. Some will substitute virtual behavior for divine vitality and personal integrity others may be content with an isolating string of experiences rather than transformation of character. Right at the heart of this alienation lies the absence of Jesus the teacher from our lives. Strangely, we seem prepared to learn how to live from almost anyone but him. We are ready to believe that the latest studies have more to teach us about love and sex than he does. And that Louis Rikeser knows more about finances. Dear Abby, or you could say, um, um, oh gosh, my own joke is escaping me. Are
2: you thinking of Dave Ramsey? Yes, finances? Dave Ramsey.
1: from yeah. my mind, one. <laughs> I could picture him in my head. With his little headset on, but I couldn't think of his name. <laughs> uh, Dave Ramsey knows more about finances. Dear Abby can teach us how to get along with our family members or our therapists or our co workers. And Carl Sagan or uh, Sam Harris is a better authority on the cosmos or a better authority on morality. We lose any sense of the difference between information and wisdom, and act accordingly. We were where we spontaneously look for information on how to live, shows how we truly feel and how we re, and who we really have confidence in. And nothing more forcibly demonstrates the extent to which we automatically assume the irrelevance of Jesus as teacher from our real lives.
0: Pause real quick. I want to read that. That's one more time. Where we spontaneously look for information on how to live shows how we truly feel and who we really have confidence in. And that's the point that we were trying to make in our string of episodes on justification. Right? Mm -hmm. Faith isn't just sent to a set of intellectual propositions and it's not acting the right way either it's being transformed into something new in concordance with or at least within the gospels framework the teachings of jesus
3: mm-hmm.
0: and so where we get our transformation from shows where we truly place our confidence hmm And that's the point that we were making in those episodes. And if you didn't get that, go back and listen, maybe we did a poor job, or maybe there's just a lot that needs to be sifted through here. I tend to think listening to things multiple times helps. Where we place our emphasis is where we place our hope. And yeah, that's the point. So you can continue.
1: Historically, conservative Christians became suspicious of any talk of Jesus as teacher because liberals were modernists, used it as a way of saying that he was not the divine son son of God and supernatural savior, but just a good man. In addition, their understanding of salvation by grace alone cut off from essentials in Christian faith, his teaching about life and God's kingdom. As we've seen being a Christian then comes to have nothing to do with the kind of person one is.
0: Pause again. That's the again the point we made in that that argument. Like if you don't see the need for a transformation of yourself, all all you see is I just need to, to think this way or act this way, then there's no like Salvation by grace alone is usually used in that way. And so this idea of salvation by grace alone cuts you off from the, the aim of transforming yourself mm-hmm. or being transformed by Christ, better yet.
1: It goes back to, so, to the example he used earlier of the, uh, of the longtime minister talking about how what I thought of would, would change changed, that it's merely interior
0: yeah exactly exactly so you can keep going
1: the modernists by contrast professed to regard him as a great teacher but then they presented him as a fundamentally as fundamentally mistaken about about major elements of his own message such as when the his kingdom would come and they explained away all his sayings and deeds that required supernatural interaction his teaching and practice of prayer for example thus they made it impossible to pray In practice, to take him seriously as a teacher. Thomas Oden points out that it becomes difficult, if not impossible, to build a plausible Christology out of naive, mistaken, helpless, or ignorant Jesus. And we should add, or on a historical, inaccessible Jesus, as he's almost universally taken to be by by the theological left. Right. This is when he makes his point about when it was actually a theology. Yeah. Yeah. We should not be surprised then that while those to the left claim to regard Jesus's ethical teachings highly, the ethic they ascribe to him turns out upon examination to be derived from the reflections of philosophers such as Locke, Rousseau, Kant and Marx, or even in more recent years, thinkers such as Martin Heidegger, Jean-Paul Sartre, Michel Foucault, postmodernist, by the way, the modernists, no more than the conservatives, were about to accept as actually binding upon themselves the plain teachings of the Gospels as we have them.
0: I think it's fine to stop there for mm-hmm. for now, because uh, I'm going to pick up in a couple paragraphs. Those next few, I don't think, are necessarily
1: um, yeah. But super, the point the point yeah. being made is that on either end, there is no integration of life and faith. There is no Jesus, the teacher of how I am to live. There is Dave Ramsey for my finances and a counselor for my relationships, which fair enough, man. I'm all for Dave Ramsey's debt snowball, and I'm all for people going to counseling. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that when your direction of how you should live your life is mainly filtered, and this is convicting for me, is mainly filtered from someone who isn't Jesus, then are you really learning from him? Are you integrating his life into your life? Are you actually following him? Or are you just thinking that he's good for your for what will be the end of your life? Something that I thought of earlier and making this case of Jesus as the missing teacher implies something, as was implied when we talk about the Bible doing like the Bible as artistic implies that it's that it is art like the bible doing literary things implies that it is you know a work of literature obviously so to say jesus is the missing teacher implies that he's well a has something to teach us which you've been talking about or b took on the role of a teacher so um i think you have you've you've told me you have some stuff you want to share in in that vein of things so
0: Yeah, so the first thing that I want to share is a video by um, of Marty Solomon's teacher, Ray Vanderlaan, um, talking to, I believe, a group of high schoolers or young college students. Um, And he's talking to them. It's a four hour talk that spans the course of a day. I would recommend listening to the whole thing. We're not going to listen to the whole thing. Um, But it's, It's really, really good. And he, he nails down on just Jewish teaching methods in general and an experience that he had when leading a, um, a learning trip in Israel. And then we're going to go from that to, I'm going to walk us through an example of Jesus doing some teaching in the gospels. Before I do either of those, I want to read one last quick thing. It's what we cut short, um, earlier when reading from willard um so if you want to pull that back up yeah
1: i'll pull it up on my screen all right
0: um so it's that bottom paragraph i'm just going to read the first little bit the first maybe sentence or two the disappearance of jesus as teacher explains why today in christian churches of whatever leaning okay so right left whatever Little effort is made to teach people to do what he did and taught. Once again, it is a natural consequence of our basic message. I lied. I'm going to continue. Who among us has personal knowledge of a seminar or course of study and practice being offered in a Christian educational program on how to love your enemies? Bless those who curse you do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spit on you and make your life miserable. Much less than one on how to conduct our business or profession on behalf of Jesus Christ. The most common response by Christians in the real world, in quotes, to Christ's teaching is precisely business is business. And we all know what that means sincere teaching on such matters simply does not appear on the christian's intellectual horizon as such um, as something that might be done we do not seriously consider jesus as our teacher on how to live hence we cannot live of ours we cannot think of ourselves in our moment to moment existence as his students or disciples So we turn to popular speakers and writers, some Christians and some not, whoever happens to be writing books and running talks, uh, running talk shows and seminars on matters that concern us. We learn from others because we have the disappearance of Jesus as our teacher.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: So let's watch this example that Ray gives of Jesus teaching or Jewish teaching, and then we'll walk through an example of Jesus doing the same thing.
2: And quote that, and they will go on for 20 minutes. When they finish their discussion, somebody will formulate a question back to the teacher and say, well, if one of the faces of the monitor lizard is God said, don't eat things that eat carrion, why don't we eat carrion now what you've done is you've answered the question with another question and the rabbi will then think about the question and then he will posit another question and that'll go on for an hour and not one single answer is ever given notice how often when people came to jesus they said may i ask you a question jesus said yes and they would say what's the chief commandment and what would jesus do what does the law say? He'll ask him a question back. He's in the temple at 12 years of age and they were amazed at his questions. Not his answers, his questions. I remember about 5 or 7 years ago. I took a group which was largely Christian school te- uh Christians who teach school, mostly Christian school but some public school teachers too. And we went to Israel with a focus on what can we take out of this that helps us become better educators? And there was a lady, I'm, I tend to be way too dogmatic on some things, and I said, remember, Jesus is not the answer man, he's the question man. He doesn't want to give you all the answers. He wants to help you raise the right questions. Well, that offended her, in a nice way. She wasn't mad at me, but she said, no, Jesus is my answer man. He's always given me all the answers. Okay, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said it that way. We were in Orthodox Jewish community, way up in northern Israel. And people were, I wanted people to experience the Orthodox Jewish way of life. And so they're wandering through the streets and buying the kind of stuff you talked about, people asked me about. And she, her name is Dottie, she walked into this photography shop. Now there's an old rabbi in Svat, still has the concentration number on his arm, Polish. And he's a photographer. He must be 85 or 90, I don't know. And um, maybe older. She's looking around at this stuff. Now, she's a photographer too, and she's seeing this gorgeous stuff. It's all impressionistic because they can't take pictures of people and animals. So she said to him, without realizing what she was doing, she said, may I ask you a question? And he said, yes, what is it? And she said, which is your favorite? And he said, are you married? which she said, and she's very fortunate, she said, yes, why? Because if she had said yes, he would have said both. And she never would have figured out what on earth that conversation was about. She said, yes, why? And he said, do you have any children? And she said, yes, a son and two daughters, why? And he said, which one is your favorite?
3: <laughs>
2: now, understand the power Of the rabbinic model because what she ended up doing is answering her own question which means far more than if I gave her the answer because then it's mine she can pitch it she can discount it she can believe it or not this was her answer she came out of the store crying. she said I met Jesus in there I had to run in and see whether it was right but (laughs) she that's the rabbinic model
0: that's how they teach And that is just so, so compelling. And we see Jesus do this all the time, all the time. So as we're about to see with Jesus, he very frequently does the exact same thing. Um, So I I have a slideshow that I'm going to share. So I preached a sermon. This was back in January. First time I preached since starting school, actually. And, um, it was, it was a very fun sermon to preach. I taught on, um, basically Jesus answer to the question, what's the greatest commandment. I've talked about this several times on the podcast, so I'm not going to go over the whole thing, but I want us to look at Jesus sermon and what it is that he does with the sermon and really think about the complexity of this and how Jesus is a very good teacher. um, Because he is very technically skilled. So I'll pull up the slideshow. Is that coming through? All right. Uh Okay. So there was a typical rabbinic parable structure um, that the rabbis would use around that time. It was a priest Levite Pharisee. This was, Typically used by Pharisaic rabbis, um, and they would. There's a reason for that. Yes, there's a reason for that, and and that's that's where I'm going. the The parable structure: you would take these three characters—the priest, the Levite, and the Pharisee—and you put them into the same situation and see how they behaved. And you'd notice ways in which they behaved differently or the same. And typically the Pharisees pitching this this parable, they have the priest behave in some way in accordance with the law that they disagreed with. Then you have the Levite behave in a way in accordance with the law that they disagreed with. And then the Pharisee would do the correct thing in fulfilling the law.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: So in Luke 10, we get an interesting example of someone asking Jesus a question. Teacher, what is your favorite? Or what is the not your favorite? What is the greatest commandment? What's the heaviest commandment? Which commandment weighs the most? And Jesus gives the typical response. In some of the gospel accounts, Jesus actually asks the student or the lawyer asking the question, what do you say it is? And in some, he just gives them the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself is how it's typically translated. We've gone over translation before. Go check that out. I think it was a really um, productive episode. So we have that, right? Jesus gives that answer. And then the student follows it up with an answer themselves.
3: Or another
0: question, I should say. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. Now, what's interesting and what I talk about a little bit in this sermon um, that I gave is Going between Jerusalem and Jericho is the typical route you take when you're going from Jerusalem to the Galilee in the north, but you want to go around Samaria because Jews and Samaritans did not get along. So this person's on this road, presumably, to avoid interacting with Samaritans, getting into a quote-unquote, bad neighborhood. And he fell into the hands of robbers, so didn't exactly work out, who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. Okay, cool. We have our first person going down the road. How's he going to respond? Is he going to, as Jesus and this lawyer had established earlier, is he going to weigh the commandments properly and love neighbor as self over all of the other commandments. Was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. No, he regards ritual purity as more important than, again, this isn't just, this isn't necessarily the guy being a jerk. This is him weighing priorities differently. Now, there is, presumably he's not on his way to the temple so he could actually potentially touch a dead thing and be okay but he still seems to uphold ritual cleanliness over this love of neighbor thing so he passed by on the other side so likewise a Levite we've got our second person when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side now remember Is it? I remember, if we go back up here, it's priest, Levite, Pharisee. The Pharisee is the one who's supposed to be doing it correctly. And what do we have? But a Samaritan. And that's when the jaws of everyone in the room drop because they know that this third person is supposed to be the one who fulfills the law properly. And how could a dirty, hick Samaritan fulfill the law properly? That's what's going through their mind while traveling came near him. Now remember, this person's presumably on this road to avoid Samaritans. And yet ironically, the Samaritan in the story is the only person who does what is required of us by the law, what Jesus would have us do, how to be like Jesus. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, and this part gets me every time, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. Having poured oil and wine on them, he spared no expense in helping this person. And then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. And Jesus finishes this story with a question. And this is where Jesus lays his trap. because there's no way out of this. And no matter how the lawyer responds, he gets the point and he came to the conclusion himself. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers?
3: Which of these three
0: men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy.
3: He can't even say Samaritan.
0: The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, Go and do likewise. Go and do do what? Show mercy like the Samaritan. Go be the person that you were trying to avoid. Go do the thing that they did. Go be the person you hate. That's the point of the parable. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute. That statement, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, we can quote that all the time. But when you listen to this parable, when Jesus teaches this, and you fully understand what it is he's trying to communicate, it punches you in the gut. Because you're called to be the Samaritan and recognize that you very well could be the class of people that you hate. Insert label
3: here. So go love them. That's what it means to teach like Jesus. And that's what it means to be like Jesus.
0: The question I posed at the end of the sermon was, how often do we find ourselves on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem? Because right, that was a road you went to specifically avoid Samaritans. And the prayer I prayed is that when we find ourselves on the road, on a road specifically to avoid people that we dislike, that God would put them in our paths anyway. Because that's exactly what happened in this parable. And if
3: it hadn't happened, this man would be dead. And we get all of that because Jesus carefully constructs a story and asks poignant questions. So don't
0: tell me Jesus isn't a good teacher. And don't tell me we don't need to be like him. So to finish it off real quick, this is page 68 of uh, Divine Conspiracy in chapter two, a little bit past, um, it's under the heading Centrality of the Pulpit. a little bit past the the section that I just read previously. He says, must not all who speak for Christ constantly ask themselves these crucial questions? Does the gospel I preach and teach have the natural tendency to cause people who hear it to become full-time students of Jesus? Would those who believe it become his apprentices as a natural next step? What can we reasonably expect would result from people actually believing the substance of my message? Does the gospel that I preach actually lead to transformation, in other words? Because if not, that's not it, man. That's not it. Skipping down a little bit. A saying among management experts today is, your system is perfectly designed to yield the results you are getting. This is a profound thought, um, pain—a profound though painfully. Let me try that again. This is a profound though painful truth that must be respected by all who have an interest in Christian spiritual formation, whether for themselves as individuals or for groups or institutions. We who profess Christianity believe what is constantly presented to Mm -hmm. us as gospels. And this is, this is key. If gospels of sin management are preached, they are what Christians will believe. And those in the wider world who reject those gospels will believe what they have rejected is the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. When in fact they haven't heard it yet. If we preach gospels of sin management and that's all that people ever hear. Assuming some of the soteriologies, the theologies of salvation that certain people on the left and the right hold, we are pushing people towards damnation. Because we are not preaching the actual gospel. And God will damn that I have no doubt. So take that into consideration.